The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Um, If you have your Bible with you today, I would encourage you to open it to Jonah chapter 1. When our, Anne reminded me more of this story uh, last night, when our children were younger, of course, they liked to watch Disney movies. And this was before DVD players, so we had these things called video cassettes, right, VHS. And when our children were younger, the big three were Aladdin, The Lion King, and Pinocchio. So that's an older one. But those are the big three Disney movies that I think were always on repeat at the Mulholland House when, we were grow- when they were growing up, when our children uh, were younger. One day after church, we went over to Anne's grandparents' house um, on her mom's side, and Anne's grandfather always liked to talk about the Bible um, and different Bible stories with, um, with not only his own grandchildren, but then his great-grandchildren. And he asked our son Nathan what Nathan's favorite Bible story was. And Nathan said Dookie was his favorite Bible story, which required a little bit of explanation, obviously. See, Nathan didn't know how to pronounce Pinocchio, so he called it Dookie. Well, then you're wondering, why is that someone's favorite Bible story? Well, if you remember in the story of Jonah, Jonah is swallowed by a fish. If you remember Pinocchio, Pinocchio is swallowed by a whale, and that makes Dookie Nathan's favorite Bible story. Right? Are you following the trajectory of that a little bit? So that was a really funny uh, conversation for us, um, and Nathan didn't know I was going to talk about this today, so I'll let him know um, later. There is a lot more to the Jonah story than Jonah being swallowed by a fish. And my hunch is, like many of the stories and many of the different Bible books that we've read over the past several years together, there are are so many things that we don't know about the Bible. We think Jonah, we think fish, and that plays a very small part of this story. So this morning, we're going to read the first 16 verses of Jonah chapter 1. You're going to look at your Bible. You're going to see that there's 17. And you might ask a question, why aren't we reading all 17? Well, because in the Hebrew text, in the original Hebrew text, um, Jonah 1.17 is actually the beginning of Jonah chapter 2. So we're going to, we're going to leave out um, Jonah 1.17. Let's read today. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship. He He found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted, get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. 
Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop the storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rolled even harder to get the ship to the land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you've sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. And they offered a sacrifice. They sold, the sailors were awestruck by the Lord's power, and they offered a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. I had a friend ask me a question earlier this week who, who's been reading and studying Jonah. He sent me a text. Do you know anything about the backstory behind Jonah? Specifically, before the story even starts, Jonah has this hatred for Nineveh. Do you know why that is? So one of the things that, that we've made available to you on the back table is a, is a resource guide. And I'm just going to read um, just two things from that resource guide. This is from the background um, of this uh, to you today. Jonah was a prophet during the reign of Job, Jeroboam II. This was a time of economic and military prosperity. Outwardly, Israel seemed blessed by God. Inwardly, in reality, there was rampant materialism, injustice, and immorality. And God would soon, within 40 to 70 years of Jeroboam II, would use the Assyrians as the means by which he would judge his people. So if you remember, remember the big story of the Bible. The people leave their slavery, their bondage in Egypt. They enter into the promised land after 40 years of wandering through the desert. And they immediately start to do all of the things they're not supposed to do. And God begins to warn them. Do what I tell you. Obey. Love, look out for other people, serve me, do all of these things. And if you don't, I'm going to send another nation in who is going to take you captive. And that nation is initially the Assyrians. So Jonah is toward the end of that timeline of these great kings where the people have been wicked. The Israelites have been exceedingly wicked and their judgment time is coming. But there's this little moment in that in their history where there's some success, right? There's material success. There's military success. And the people of that day are no different than us today. We think when things are going well in our own lives, we tend to imagine then that we have been blessed by God, right? We must be doing something right when good things are happening to us. 
And if that had led the people to worship and praise God, that would be one thing. But instead, it made them turn inward and more wicked. So that's who Jonah was. So Jonah is this prophet. And then let's talk about Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's located opposite the modern city of Mosul in Iraq. About 100 years earlier than the events of Jonah, the Assyrian king Salmanazar II forced the Israelite king Jehu to bow before him and bring tribute of gold, silver, and other items. So the Assyrians are bad people. The Israelites had this history with Assyria, and it wasn't a good history. So Jonah is being called to go to Nineveh and to call them to repent. And this obviously is bad news for the Israelites, right? Because none of us, as much as we don't like to see in our wickedness and in our sinfulness, as much as we don't like to see our friends have more success than us, isn't that true? If we were to be honest, aren't we often jealous when our friends are more successful than us? You certainly don't want to see your enemies be more successful than you. So Jonah is being called to go and proclaim this message to the wicked Ninevites. And he doesn't want to do it. He hates them. He has this history of of wickedness from the Assyrians to his own people. And he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to tell them that judgment is coming. And what we're seeing in Jonah chapter 1 is this back and forth between God's justice and Jonah's apathy. See, God has called Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach judgment. To call them to repent. And Jonah doesn't want to do that. Let's talk about God's justice for a minute. A lot of times we hear that word justice and we look at it with with our own eyes. We look at it with the eyes of people who live in 2022. And honestly, for many of us, justice looks like revenge. That's sort of the great cultural narrative in which we live. That justice looks like revenge. But God's justice is something different. It's it's tempered with mercy. What's really interesting about God's justice is he sees the Ninevites, he sees their wickedness, and he's going to do something about it. That is very not 2020-22. See, sometimes we don't want to tell people what they're actually doing wrong because as a culture, we've decided that's wrong to call people out on their sin. But God isn't bound by that. God sees them and he's just and he's going to judge them. He sees their wickedness and he's going to judge them. Here's what Assyria is known for. When they would go into a city, they would skin people alive. When they would go into a city, they would force the nobles in the city. This is like serious psychological warfare. They would force the nobles in the city to grind the bones of their ancestors to erase them from memory. The Assyrians invented crucifixion. They were evil, wicked people. Imagine being called then to go and call them to repent. These are your enemies. And see, God sees them. He sees their wickedness and he sends Jonah. And we have to start asking some questions. Well, why does he do that? Why doesn't God just strike the Assyrians down? 
Well, that's what Jonah is going to want, and we're going to get there in chapter 4. Why doesn't God send bad things to happen on the Assyrians? Why is he warning them? Well, because God's justice is tempered with mercy. And this is something that I think we need to learn a lot from in our day. Is justice is tempered with mercy. So he sends Jonah to tell them of their wickedness. Jonah, they're wicked people. Go and call them to repent. See, then they won't have a choice, right? Or then they will have a choice. They'll no longer be ignorant of their sin. Maybe they don't know that they're sinners. Jonah, go to them. Call them to repent. Call them to repent because I am merciful. Because what I really want is for them to repent. And I want you to also notice, thinking about God's justice in this story, when the storm comes up, what do the sailors immediately think? They think someone has offended the gods and they are being punished because someone has offended them. See, they have a, they have a concept of God's justice. We sort of see this today when bad things happen. Kind of our default switch, right or wrong, is maybe they did something bad. See, there is an element to God's justice in this story. But then there's Jonah. And Jonah's apathetic to the way his reluctance to obey God leads to consequences for himself. I want to say that again. Jonah is apathetic to the way his reluctance to obey God leads to consequences for himself. See, Jonah's this man of God. He's supposedly this prophet and God calls him to go and tell his message to the people of Jonah. But Jonah's apathetic to what he's being called to. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. That second part is really important. And then it gets repeated. He bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. See, Jonah isn't just fleeing, not telling the Ninevites about the reality of who God is. Jonah is fleeing God himself. Jonah knows what he's being called to. And rather than do what he's being called to do, he flees from God. I don't want to do this thing. And I wonder how many of us think about what happens when we refuse the invitation to join God in what he's doing? I wonder how many of us think that who we're really fleeing from is God. Who we're really ignoring is God. Who we're really rejecting is God. And this story is telling us that when we choose to not do the thing that God has called us to, we're not just fleeing from that thing, but we are fleeing from God. I wonder how many of us think about that. I wonder why we think that ignoring God has no consequences. Where does this idea come from? And we also have to ask ourselves, what lengths have we gone through to escape from the Lord. What are the things that God has called us to do in his word? And in rejecting him, to what lengths have we gone to to escape from the Lord?
So Tarshish, let's talk about Tarshish. It's 2,500 miles away. It was the easternmost point in the known world. So if you look in your study guide, and this is a resource guide, this is why we hand these out, you'll see, you'll see a map in there that reveals to you just how far away Tarshish is from Joppa. Right? It's on the southern half of, southern part of Spain there. The uh, Straits of Gibraltar is what we call that now. This is the easternmost point of the known world. Once you cross through the Straits of Gibraltar at this point, you're looking at the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean. Like everything east of that is unknown. And here's what Jonah does. He flees literally to the end of the earth. He is on his way to the furthest place he can possibly be to get away from what God is calling him to. But Jonah's not just apathetic or reluctant. Jonah's disobedient. We tend to look at this story and we think, well, Jonah just doesn't want to do this thing. So, I mean, there are lots of things I don't want to do, right? And when we don't want to do something, what do we do? We don't do it. But Jonah is being disobedient. His hatred of the Ninevites drives this apathy for proclaiming the reality of who God is to them. And ultimately where this ends up is a rejection of God. And in contrast to the justice and mercy of God, Jonah is disobedient towards the wicked Ninevites. And this seems like it makes sense, right? Who wants to go into enemy territory and proclaim the gospel to them. What's going to happen to me? Are they going to kill me? Are they going to hurt me? Are they going to persecute me? And I think we tend to think that that's what Jonah's issue is, but it's really not. He just doesn't like the Ninevites. He hates the Ninevites. And imagine about how little he has to care about the fate of the Assyrians. See, this is the way we need to think. When we've been called to do something, when we haven't been invited by God to do something, what we ought to be thinking about is the way our apathy is impacting and affecting the lives of other people. Jonah doesn't care about the Assyrians. He's not interested in what God is going to do to punish them. They don't deserve mercy. They don't deserve grace. And as I've been reading this story over the past several months, they don't even deserve a heads up. See, what Jonah wants is for God to just smite them, to just destroy them. But it's not just apathy and disobedience to God towards the Ninevites. It's an apathy towards the sailors. Imagine what it would be like to be a sailor on the boat with Jonah. That Jonah cares so little about your safety that he's going to get on that boat with you. Listen to the language. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, but Jonah got up 
went in the opposite direction. But the Lord hurled a powerful storm over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break their ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard the lightened the ship. These seasoned sailors are scared to death. See, they've, they've been to Tarshish before, most likely. They've been to the end of the earth and this storm comes up and they are afraid and they're calling out to their gods for safety. They're throwing the cargo overboard. And what's so fascinating about this is we have to ask the question, where's Jonah? In the midst of all of this chaos and in the midst of all of this destruction caused by Jonah, what's Jonah doing? He's sound asleep in the hold of the ship. How apathetic does Jonah have to be to the suffering of other people that he can just go to sleep? How disobedient to God's call on his life does he have to be that he can just rest while everyone else is trying to save the ship? There's this, um, this is in your Version app. Paul talks with Timothy um, in his first letter about the dangers of it having a dead conscience. Some translations call it a seared conscience. And I've been asked in the past, what does it mean to have a seared conscience? How can I know if my conscience is seared against what God is calling me to? And I think we see it in Jonah. Jonah is so comfortable in his sin that he can sleep soundly, oblivious to the hell that he is putting other people through. That's what a seared conscience looks like. Apathy, obliviousness, complete and total lack of concern for any other person. And this too is where we also have to pause and we have to ask ourselves some questions. How easy is it for us to be comfortable and set in our disobedience? How easy is it for us to be comfortable and set in our disobedience? What about when our sinfulness affects other people? Is it easy? Why do we suppose that our sin has no consequences for other people? Where did we even get the idea that our sin doesn't impact the lives of other people? Where did these things come from? I think the answer to that last question is that many of us have fallen for two lies. The first lie is that our own sin has no consequence. That's the first lie. I can, I can do whatever I want to do. The word that we've used a few times around here is autonomy. Right? I have autonomy over myself. I can make my own choices. I can make my own decisions. And whatever choice I make, good or bad, is my choice to make. And there are no consequences for my sin. Right? That's why we continue to sin day after day after day after day. Because we have fallen for the lie 
that there are no consequences for my sin. That's the first lie. And here's the second lie that we've all fallen for. Our sin doesn't affect other people. In my, in my own autonomy, in my own choices, the things that I decide to do has no impact or effect on other people. Because, I mean, that's really their problem, isn't it? I mean, I'm not the one that forced them to do that thing. These are two terrible lies. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And we likely all know what a wage is, but let's explore it anyway. When I go to work, I get paid something. Right? When I go to work, I'm owed something. It's what I'm owed. Whatever job you have, when you go to work, you are paid a wage. You, you, are, you are owed that. And the language that Paul is using when he writes that the wages of sin is death is that when I sin, what I am owed is death. When I sin, what I'm going to be paid in, what I'm going to be, there's an R-E word that just slipped my mind. What I'm going to be paid with is going to be death. I'm going to receive in return from my sinfulness, I'm going to receive death. And maybe it won't be physical death. It might be spiritual death. It might be emotional death. It might be the death of relationships. It might be consequences. How many of you have experienced, when you sin, how many of you have experienced a return of some kind of death in your own life? See, Paul says the wages of sin is death. And he says this because sin has consequences. And when we fall for the lie that sin has no consequences and the consequences of my sin don't impact and affect other people, we are asking ourselves, we're asking for trouble. Galatians 6, 7 says this. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. How many of us are, have been planting in our garden or putting out grass seed or planting a crop over the last couple weeks? How many of us have been doing that? Okay. When you do that, you know what crop you're going to get? The, the crop that you planted. Does that make sense? My wife is growing potatoes in our backyard right now. And in several months, um, we're going to have potatoes. We're not going to have, there, there's nothing that's going to happen that is going to magically transform that potato plant into an apple tree. That would be cool, but it's not going to happen. See, what the Bible is telling us here is you always harvest what you plant. So if what I am planting in my life is sinfulness, 
what I'm going to harvest is decay and death. This is what God's word is telling us right now. I come from a long family history of substance abuse. Like, way back. And the reality of it is, is those family members before me have, have, have made a bed, right? They've made a bed that I didn't make. But I sure got to sleep in it. And what we have to consider is our sinfulness affects the lives of other people. And this is not something that Jonah cared about. He's uninterested. He doesn't give a rip about anyone that he comes into contact to. He seared his conscience. But thankfully, we can go back to God's justice. See, God's justice isn't idle. God's justice is merciful. God's justice sends Jonah to Nineveh. Jonah, I see these wicked Ninevites. I see the way they punish and torture, and I see the chaos that it's causing, not only in their own society, but in their lives, but in the societies and lives of other people. I see it, and what I would love for you to do is is tell them that I'm going to judge them. See, this is God's mercy. So that they would be aware of their sin. God's justice isn't idle. It mercifully acts. It also acts on the boat. The sailors cast lots. And God uses those lots to reveal the guilty party to the sailors. Isn't that an amazing display of God's mercy? The sailors are crying out. We don't know what to do. We're going to die. We need to know whose fault all of this is. Let's cast lots and God reveals Jonah. And these sailors, they have to do something, right? They have to take action. It's interesting. When faced with the choice of going to Nineveh or not, what does Jonah choose? He chooses not. Isn't it strange that when given the choice, After Jonah has been revealed, they start to take action against Jonah. They start to ask him these questions. Why has all of this happened? Who are you? Where are you from? What's your nationality? And don't you love Jonah's answer? I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Do you see the irony in his statement? He sounds like a really faithful, obedient follower of God. At least he makes himself out to be that, doesn't he? But he's not. And this really scares the sailors because if Jonah worshiped the God who made everything, especially the sea, and they're in the midst of this storm, this would really cause them to be fearful. Because that means that God is in charge of this storm. So we have to do something, right? We have to do something to appease this God. We have to do something to make this right with this particular God. Because what is he going to do to us? 
So they call him to account for his sin. They accuse him and they tell him, tell them how his sin is affecting them. See, they pursue Jonah because God's justice demands action. Pay close attention to verse 12. It says, throw me into the sea and it will become calm again. I know that this storm is all my fault. If we're not careful, what we're going to do is we're going to read this verse as repentance. Oh, Jonah has admitted his sin. But he's really just acknowledging that he's a sinner. He's really just taking some ownership of it. He's taking some responsibility. What he's saying is, I know how much my sin has affected you, but I'm still not going to Nineveh, so just throw me in the water. Do you see that in this story? What Jonah's saying is, I would rather die than allow the Ninevites to know that God is going to judge them. I hate them so much that I just want them to die. So just throw me into the water so I don't have to go there. And what's interesting, the, the sailors kind of struggle a little bit, right? They think they're going to outrow the storm. So they try and they try and they try and they see that they're not getting anywhere. Because unlike Jonah, they recognize that they're, the sinfulness of other people actually impacts them. So they make the decision to throw Jonah into the water. The storm ends and they're the storm ends and they're awestruck by God and they offer this sacrifice and they probably they offer to serve him, which probably doesn't mean what you think it means. Right? Because people in this day worshipped many gods. So ultimately what they did was they probably made some kind of idol to the Lord that saved them on that day and just put it on the shelf just with all of their other gods to worship. And we have to ask, what does all of this mean for us? See, God is just in regards to the sinfulness of mankind and he frequently displays his justice by means of mercy. See, when God becomes aware, and that sounds kind of strange to say it like that, like God becomes aware as if he doesn't know how sinful we are. But when God becomes aware of our sinfulness, he displays his justice by means of mercy. He is merciful. He is constantly presenting the reality of who he is to people who are sinners. We're going to talk more about this in August when we read through Romans together. But God uses creation to reveal the reality of who he is. He did in the storm. God uses the law to reveal the reality of who he is. He uses his word. He uses believers. See, all of these things God uses to reveal to wicked sinners the reality of who he is. And he does this because he loves them. He sees our sin. He sees my sin. He sees your sin. And because he is just, he is good. And he sends mercy. 
He's warning the Ninevites. He does this because he loves us. He sees the chaos and death and destruction in our lives and he sends himself. He calls us to a better way of living. He calls us to a better person than ourselves and that person is Jesus. So one of the things that we can sort of take away from this this story is that God is just. And God demonstrates his justice through mercy. And here's the second thing. Like Jonah, mankind is still often apathetic to the way that our sinfulness leads to consequences, both in our own lives and in the lives of other people. Just like Jonah, we are often apathetic. And what that means is we don't care about the consequences of sin in our own lives and in the lives of other people. We're apathetic. We're disobedient. And there are consequences for our disobedience. When we choose apathy, when we choose reluctance, when we choose disobedience, at the end of the day, we're being disobedient to God. It's not just to one another, but it is disobedient to God. Jonah's apathy is not just a hatred for the Ninevites, it's a hatred toward God. And that was a really hard sentence for me to write earlier this week. Because when I am apathetic about serving the people that God loves, what that reveals about my own heart is a hatred toward God. A hard and reluctant heart towards people will always lead them to a hard and reluctant heart towards God. And because God is just, he takes action. And this is really good news for us. That God is not idle in his justice. Romans 2.4 says this. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness, kindness is intended to turn you away from your sin? See, we tend to look at God and we think, man, there's, there's all of this injustice in the world. All of these wicked things happening in the world. And not just in the world, but in our own lives, right? And we wonder, like, why isn't God doing something about this? Why isn't God fixing this? Why doesn't God change that person's heart? That's on a good day. We're usually thinking, why doesn't God come in and destroy that person? And what Romans is telling us is, God in his kindness is intended to turn us away from our sin. Sometimes the best thing that can happen to us spiritually is for us to get every single thing that we've ever wanted only to see that it's completely empty and meaningless. This is how God works. So what do we do? I just want to talk to two people, non-believers. 
God loves you so much that he sees you in your sin and he is sending people to you to warn you of God's judgment. He's warning you. And the gift of that person who is coming to you, that's actually mercy. That's actually God's mercy at work. This is a gift of God. This is a grace of God. And what I've been praying about for you all week long is, is what you would hear in this message is that God loves you. I would pray that, that somehow the, the words that are coming out of my mouth would be a demonstration to you that God loves you. And God sees you in your sinfulness. And he's calling you to something else. And maybe you think that you're not really a sinner. Okay, you are. Maybe you think that you are such a sinner that God could never have mercy on you. And he could never forgive you. He can. And he will. And he wants to. And now to believers in the room. God loves the people you hate. God loves the people you hate. And we want to be careful and not be apathetic towards the people that we hate. We want to be cautious and not be apathetic to the mission and the ministry that God has called us to. We don't want to reject God. See, what makes us a follower of Christ are, are, are not the words that we use. That's Jonah, right? I'm a Hebrew. I worship God. That's not what makes us a follower of Christ. What makes us a follower of Christ is giving up our own way, taking up our own cross, and following Jesus. This is what makes us a follower of Christ. We must recognize that our apathy in not being faithful to who God calls us to be we must recognize that not being faithful to the mission and the purpose for our lives that God calls us to be, we're causing consequences in the lives of other people. Our unwillingness to be obedient to God is impacting the lives of other people. Our disobedience impacts the lives of other people. And what I've been praying about for you this week, if you are one of those apathetic, reluctant, disobedient people, I would pray that perhaps this series would be the captain of the ship banging on your door, asking you, why are you sleeping? How can you sleep? Why are you sleeping? I'm praying that this series will wake you from your slumber. And for those of you who are awake, loving and serving and being on mission, my prayer for you is that you would not grow weary. 
that you would not grow weary of the task, that you would not grow weary with the disobedience of whomever the Ninevites are in your life that aren't listening to you. And I would also pray that you would not grow weary of those who are sleeping in the hold. That you would not allow them to be your enemy. But that you would lovingly call them and invite them to participate in the mission that God has for you. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for your word. I am thankful for even the most terrible of examples in scripture because they reveal to us the reality of ourselves. As much as this is a story about Jonah, this is a story about us. I pray that you would burrow deeply into our hearts this week that we would evaluate our own apathy. That we would evaluate your justice. That we would see your justice is more than, has more than just a hint of mercy. It overflows with mercy. And you've invited us to be a part of that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.